Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. This season, we're bringing in leading female powerhouses to take a deep dive into the topics that matter most to you. Technology, money, marketing, entrepreneurship, you name it, we're covering it all. Tune in every Wednesday for career, real talk, and BS-free advice from the best in the biz. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. work party, we talk a lot about finding the white space, finding a problem that you want to solve for something that doesn't exist. For Aishwarya Ayer, she started making olive oils in California after learning that most of the extra virgin olive oil that Americans are consuming is rotten or rancid. With a background in tech and venture capital, she set out to reinvent the olive industry as it was ripe for disruption. So how did she go from Silicon Valley to a single farm estate instead? In this episode of Work Party, I'm sitting down with her to find out her Instagram-worthy bottle design strategy and what it takes to disrupt an industry you have zero experience in. So tune in to learn how you can master the art of the pivot and build a successful business like Ashwarya that challenges the status quo one beautiful bottle at a time. So let's get into it. So welcome to Work Party. I am so excited to have you. We Thank you for having me. Of course. We typically like to start at the beginning. So you were born in India, moved to the U.S. at three months old. You moved around during your formative childhood years. You spent time in Houston. Can you take us back to the time where you were, you know, young and thinking as a child, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, yes. So um, my parents are, you know, my parents immigrated to the United States. And so their mentality was all around safety and stability. And so they said, you have three career options. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And I just, I don't think that I even knew that other career paths existed, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't understand that there could be a whole world of, of creative and just, it just didn't occur to me. I knew eventually, you know, as I got older that I wanted to break molds, but I couldn't wrap my head around what that could be. So honestly, I went down a path of maybe I'll become a doctor. And then I sort of said, oh, maybe I'll become a lawyer. But it was all under the guise of making my parents proud. And 
not having a clear kind of definition or understanding of who I truly was. And then eventually I, you know, I actually started my career or excuse me, started college at UT Austin, kind of doing the same sort of thing that I thought my parents wanted me to do. It's in Texas. A lot of friends I knew were going there. And eventually, um, without telling anybody, I applied to NYU and got into Gallatin School of Individualized Study, which is the opposite of, you know, becoming a lawyer, doctor, or an engineer, and moved to New York and ended up graduating from NYU. And the school, the Gallatin School, is just so special because you thread together a concentration that no two people will have the same sort of major that you will have and you create it on your own and you work with advisors. So it's like super special and and just something that I would have never even imagined kind of growing up in Houston and kind of with the immigrant uh, mindset that I, that I kind of was um, brought up in. Yes, I I totally agree. I think that we're around the same age. So I think that growing up, Instagram didn't exist. Like there was no access into other people's lives where you could say, oh, she does that. That's so cool. I want to do that. Like it was these very bucketed things that you could kind of get into. And and it was what you saw in movies and and those type of things. So now I think it's a whole new world, um, you know, where you're able to kind of see all these different careers and people having really interesting ways to monetize their lives. And and there's so much opportunity, which I'm sure has its own set of pros and cons, but your career started in L'Oreal's luxury products division at Lancome, and you spent close to a decade in communication and advisory roles in the tech and startup world. So what was your experience in one Silicon Valley and in the beauty industry? And how did these like corporate-ish and startup sort of roles shape you as an entrepreneur? Let's see. Well, when I worked at L'Oreal, it was early days of vlogging and blogging. So we were asking the question is YouTube going to be relevant? Is that a channel that we should invest in? So that was the conversation that was happening. But I think what I learned at L'Oreal, the biggest takeaway was that even if you're a large organization, you can operate within a large organization super nimbly and like be really creative and thoughtful because we were one of the first beauty brands to establish a Facebook page, which sounds so funny now. But in 2007, 2008, that just wasn't something that an established like kind of prestige beauty brand would ever think of doing. And so I think it gave me insight into, you know, forging your own path, even within a larger organization. But at the end of the day, I think that I like thrive in smaller, you know, really fundamentally smaller environments. So I've worked at a few startups now um, in New York and in LA and just the speed at which everybody moves and you're not afraid to do things in an imperfect way. I think that that has just been rooted into my kind of professional DNA now. So no matter, you know, now that I'm building Brightland, that is exactly how I operate and how I sort of want my team to operate too. So Obviously, you're in Silicon Valley. You are. You go to Gallatin, a great school. You were at Lancome, a huge company, and then you went to this single farm estate. So, where in the world does olive oil come in, and yeah. how did you realize that this could be a business? So, I was year eight of living in New York City, and any New Yorkers can appreciate this. But I had the spreadsheet of 800, 700 restaurants that I was keeping track of and basically never cooked. I lived in a little 350 square foot studio. 
and was just running around town every night. And around year like eight-ish of living in the city, I got into a serious relationship and both my partner and I started cooking more. And the first thing that we kept noticing was that we kept getting stomach aches. And at first we thought it was bread. Then we thought it was dairy cheese. We thought that it was spices. And it was every time that we cooked and you know, we kept cutting things out and trying to eliminate things. And I talked to a couple of like nutritionist friends. Um, I was Googling on my own. And eventually someone said, you know, it could be the cooking oil that you're using. And we were using olive oil. And, you know, I had never given olive oil a second thought. I came from a family of home cooks, but just it was just not a topic of conversation ever. And I did a little bit of Googling around bad olive oil. And I learned that north of 70% of the olive oil that Americans consume is rancid, rotten, or it's been adulterated. And it's an industry that's rife with fraud. The Italian mafia, you know, historically has been involved with kind of like perpetuating that fraud. And 60 Minutes had done a big piece about all of this. And I thought it was just so eye-opening and crazy. And I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper. And um, I don't know, I I think I just was so intrigued and said, I think there has to be a, a solution or someone needs to do something about this. And then that was, that got me kind of rolling down this, this hill and this path. Okay. So you said rancid. What was the other one? Rancid, rotten, or it's been adulterated, which means it's been cut with another oil, like a canola oil or some sort of like corn oil. Ah, Got it. Got it. Fascinating and terrifying at the same time. So you, you find this out, you start, you know, kind of the wheels are turning in your head. And the first thing you did was you built out a brand strategy deck. So one of the things, if you haven't seen Brightland um, or the brand, is it's really, really beautiful. It's like beautifully designed. It's very thoughtful. Why was this step so important and how did it help define, you know, the brand's mission? One thing that I noticed in my days working at tech companies um, on the communications and public affairs side is that in a lot of in a lot of cases, entrepreneurs want to be because they want to build really quickly and they want to scale really aggressively. They want to be everything to everybody. And that just does not work, whether you're building a consumer app, whether you're building a fintech company, or you're building a food and beverage brand. And so I said, I really want to build this like brand. I called it a brand strategy deck. And basically it articulated, who do I think our customer is? What is this? And then who is Brightland? Like what kind of music does Brightland listen to? What kind of um, what does Brightland read? What does Brightland stand for and believe in? What are the words that we kind of embody? And what are the words that we don't really care for? Like cheeky and clever really isn't part of our personality. But trying to, I think it's so important to build that in the early days because you can use it as a moving document. It doesn't have to be something that's set in stone, but at least it gives you an idea of who you are. And that way you can apply it to other things, like whether it's once your company launches, like whether it's a partnership or a um, collaboration, even you can kind of come back to that and be like, does this truly make sense for me? Does it make sense for the brand right now? Um, So that was really, I think you have to know what your company and what your brand stands for. Um, So that was really pivotal for, for us to build. I love it. And, you know, I think it's so important when you're first starting out building those brand persona documents and and what they sort of mean. What music does Brightland listen to? I'm so curious. (laughs) Uh, Brightland loves Corinne Bailey Ray, Justin Towns Earl, 
Brightland loves sort of the afternoon lazy kind of music. We actually have a few playlists, so I'll send them to you too. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. I love it. We'll link those in the um, episode notes as well. Your business is more than the goods you sell or the services you provide. It's the heart of the economy, which is why I'm teaming up with MasterCard to support entrepreneurs by sharing my tips and advice to help their local business, like how to use analog solutions to truly stand out. Okay, the advancement of digital technology has completely transformed the way we do business. From marketing to distributing to selling to interacting with customers, technology has impacted literally everything that we do. Thanks to the advancement like email, social media, and artificial intelligence, we can now connect and sell to customers from across the world. As businesses, we have the opportunity to reach wider audiences than ever before. Though these digital solutions have improved business in undeniable ways, many businesses have abandoned analog solutions altogether in their pursuit of the latest and greatest digital offerings often attempting to quote, do it all without taking the time to implement each new tool in a meaningful way. The truth is there's so much value in traditional communication techniques. Things like picking up the phone, sending a personalized card, all offer human elements that so often get lost in the automation friendly trends of today. In a highly digital world, people crave authenticity and connection. So my tip is to embrace the new without completely abandoning the old. Identify the tech solutions that elevate your business while still holding on to traditional techniques that will make your customers feel special. For more tools and resources, go to mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. That's mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. And remember, together, we can start something priceless. Hey guys, I'm Kinsey from the I Love You So Much podcast. On my show, we talk about everything lifestyle, business, finance, beauty, you name it. My favorite part about the show is the amazing guests that we bring on. We have everyone ranging from like business experts to influencers, CEOs, creative masterminds. It's so much fun. If you guys want to find me on Instagram and it's just at Kinsey Elizabeth, I release new episodes every Thursday. So hope to see you there. Okay, so you build this brand deck. You started making olive oils in California after learning that most, again, of these extra virgin olive oils are rotten, rancid, and adulterated. And I want to learn a little bit more about like extra virgin and all these like interesting kind of regulations. But how did you find that, um, you know, now that you found out the olive industry is completely unregulated, how did you decide to tip your toe in it? And like, were you nervous with like the mafia and like all these other things that like maybe this wasn't going to work? I was kind of living in New York, found all this out. And at first I thought I would create a certification program. I didn't even think about the consumer product side of it. I was like, maybe I'll create a certification program and like a stamp of approval or something like that. And then the more that I thought about it, I said, you know, I really want to build something that's just much closer to consumers and has an emotional connection. Um, And I moved to Los Angeles to actually work at another tech company. But on the weekends, I started visiting olive farms here in California. And I should add, until I moved out here and started visiting these farms, I was looking at Europe. I was like, oh, maybe, you know, Spain or Italy or I know Tunisia has some interesting oil. Like maybe that's what I should be thinking about. But when I moved out here and visited the farms, I tasted kind of domestic olive oil production and saw the care that's being put into olive oil being produced here. And I also took courses at the UC Davis Olive Center, which is a real place and it's really wonderful. 
and learned so much. And so I think those two things, plus, you know, of course, a ton of Googling and calling people and asking people for favors. I think all of those things together gave me a bit of a foundation to then say, okay, here, here are my next steps and here's my kind of plan to build this. Amazing. So what happens at the UC Davis Olive Center? Like what were you learning? And like, I'm curious, knowing that you were saying a lot of rancid or this or that, is there like a tried and true answer of like, how long does olive oil last? And like, what do you need to look out for? Yes. Okay. So, well, the UC Davis Olive Center is doing incredible research around molecular composition of olive oil. They're asking questions like, does smoke point really matter? How long can all, like, what are the true enemies of olive oil? And the answer to that is light, heat, and air. So basically you never want light to shine in. Like you never want to store your olive oil in a clear container. You'd never want it to be in an area that's like way too hot. You know, I would say like 70 degrees is like a good point to think about anything higher than 75, you should probably just stick your olive oil in the refrigerator and then air. So you don't want to leave open containers or even those like kind of those, I I see them in Italian restaurants. Sometimes people will have like the clear container and then they'll just leave the the top kind of open. That's just terrible because the oil is getting oxidized and it goes rancid pretty quickly. So the UC Davis Olive Center is just doing tremendous like amounts of research and and, um, just building out like a repository of knowledge. On the olive oil kind of like 101 front, I think the things that I just shared are really, really pivotal. And then I think knowing that it's a fresh, it comes from a fruit, right? Like the olive itself is a fruit. And knowing what it should actually taste like, it should taste fresh and bright and earthy and it should have flavor. It shouldn't taste like plastic or metal, which is a lot of what supermarket brands taste like. Um, So really having a keen sense of like taste and smell a little bit like wine. I think that's really, really imperative. And then I think understanding when it was made. Harvest date is super, super important. So you want to know exactly when your olive oil was created. It doesn't matter the best by date. If there's a best by date, but not a harvest date, that's just not relevant Mm. or interesting. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So sustainability is in Brightland's DNA rather than mass produce. You obviously do artisanal and small batch approaches. So what was the strategy there and why was that the formula to your success? You know, as you were launching, you said you looked in Europe, all these other places, but you honed in on California and that market. And really California is a huge part of the DNA of Brightland. Yeah. I think that I felt like there wasn't a there wasn't knowledge about California being a wonderful producer of olive oil. And I kept thinking about the wine industry in the 70s and how um, people who pioneered the wine industry in California in, in the 70s always said that, uh, you know, in, in Europe or just even Americans thought that California wine could not compete with European wine, when in fact it absolutely could. And, and now it has proven otherwise. So I thought about that a lot. And, um, Ultimately, I wasn't thinking about the terms artisanal or small batch. I think it was just how I wanted to build the company. Like I wanted to partner with family farms. I wanted the farms to have mills on site. I wanted them to have certain quality indicators. And so it kind of ended up working this way. And now we're building a collective of farms that kind of match our values and produce really gorgeous oil. So you bootstrapped the company at the beginning and then you raised a pre-seed sort of friends, family, angel round um, in December of last year. So tell us a little bit about your approach with 
the raise, how you're running the business, um, and you know how you're uh, working to scale the company. Sure. Um, so I originally decided that I wanted to bootstrap to launch the company. I wanted to see how lean I could be, how how far I could take it without raising any outside outside capital. And so I decided on that. And then a year in, I looked back and, you know, I don't come from a trust fund. Like I don't have sort of like family wealth so that I could just sort of continue not taking much of a salary or any salary. Like those privileges aren't in, in my background. And so that was part of the reason to raise, to be totally honest. And the other part of it was to... Once we identified that there was product market fit, our biggest problem was always that we would run out of inventory or we didn't have enough hours in the day because it was just for for the first year, it was just me full-time with a team of part-time kind of consultants. And there's only so much you can do. And so when you see that gap, for me, that was the opening of, okay, I think that these are the things that I need to be able to raise. And then the third piece of it was, I really wanted a group of people who I could call up and say, hey, I'm thinking about this, or I'm thinking about hiring this way, or I'm thinking about distribution in this way and people who have done it before. And um, that's basically how I ended up curating my my round and how my round came together. I think that's really smart. I also think that's something that, you know, a lot of female founders don't do early on is think about their liquidity and like how they will be compensated because it's your baby. You're, you're doing everything to keep it going and keep it alive. But I think that's actually a really smart approach and a question that you should ask yourself as an entrepreneur. Obviously, in your case, you had seen the success, the product market fit. Your biggest problem was you're running out of stock. Amazing. Um, and then obviously taking that step and putting together a board um, of investors that you're really excited about. So what would you say your number one money tip for small business owners? My number one money tip for small business owners is to be able to negotiate as much as you can to get terms on almost everything you can. Um, Cash is king. Everyone says that. But you have no idea how important it is until you you are in the midst of it and you're looking at orders that you need to place. So being able to negotiate with all of your partners and vendors on your payment terms, I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. Great advice. So anyone who's seen the product, it has this insanely gorgeous bottle design. It's very Instagrammable. Um, <laughs> do you think about the Instagram effect when you designed it? Like, or was it purely accidental? Because it, it, I remember it popping up in my feed everywhere, you know, even before I knew about you and the brand and stuff. So tell us a little bit about that strategy. I think for us, I thought a lot about, okay, if we want to really celebrate um, this industry, you know, California produced beautiful um, handcrafted olive oil, and we want to tell that story digitally, and people aren't in a store where they can pick up the bottle, what are the ways that we can really shine, I think, shine a spotlight? And design just was at the forefront of that. And I think for us, like we, I kept thinking about how at at grocery stores and I would stand there and at Whole Foods, I used to watch people buy olive oil and everyone just looked very bored and everyone didn't know what to buy because all the bottles looked the same. So I think that was the kind of leading piece of it for us where we said, let's build, um, I really want to build a product that has a completely different design than what's out there right now. And so that was really the kind of impetus. And then layering on top of that, 
was the, you know, kind of added effect or the thought process of, oh, and people will end up, you know, obviously wanting to share it or take pictures of it for Instagram. That's something that you have to think about as like a product, especially food and bev is like, how is this going to look on a shelf in comparison to our competitors or to like the mainstay of like what is normalized in that category? And I think that's something that is great advice for anyone who's looking to build a product-based business where you will take up shelf space in that way. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Instagram is really a pay-to-play world. So what social media tips or strategies can you share that would help small business owners starting out to achieve the success that you guys did there? Um, having that brand, having, having a really solid inspiration, kind of like, even if it's like a large Pinterest board or it's a, you know, an actual tangible tactile board of what inspires you that you can kind of keep coming back and referring to as you're seeking out content or imagery. I think that that's really important because you kind of come back to that original kind of, this is what we were inspired by and are inspired by. I think that's one piece. I think the second, everyone talks about like authenticity and all of that. And it's like, I don't know what that really means because ultimately Instagram is a performance. So I just don't know what that truly means. But putting your thoughts and feelings out there, whether it's, you know, you're talking about your packaging, why did you design it that way? Or you're talking about your label and why your label is designed that way. People want to hear that. So I think being able to share your, your um, kind of the inner workings I think that that's really, you know, people love, love hearing that. And then ultimately having your product in the hands of people who are excited to use it and are, you know, whether they're slicing open beautiful burrata and the oil oozes out, like everybody wants to kind of feel an emotional connection to what they're looking at on the screen. So I think, um, especially if you're food or beverage, incorporating your product into those like simple food moments. I think that's really, really important too. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about this before um, we started recording, but let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 and the impact on your business. So what what pivots have you made? Have you seen any upticks? Because I feel like so many more people are probably cooking at home. Like how have you sort of reacted to that? Yeah. So the first thing we saw was that... So, okay. So to take a step back, the majority of Brightland's business is direct to consumer but we do have a wholesale aspect to our business. So we work with wonderful small businesses and stores around the country. And then we work with a handful of larger um, retailers like Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and Goop and folks like that. So the first thing we saw when COVID-19 happened was those larger retailers canceled purchase orders. We lost, I think, over $25,000 of purchase orders in a matter of three days. So that was the first kind of piece that we saw happen. And then the second was the smaller stores were slowly starting to close. But what was interesting was on the flip side, we saw grocery and restaurants that usually didn't carry these types of products, especially on the restaurant side, start to connect with us and say, hey, we're now putting together like a pantry program. We'd love to carry you. So that was kind of offset. And then on the online side, we definitely saw a bit of an uptick because exactly what you said, people are cooking at home more. So it's been, it's been interesting. And yeah, I I just don't know where it's going to go. Same. Um, So when you get that phone call about the the $25,000 loss, like how do you as a CEO, as a leader deal with that? Like how do you deal with the wins, but also the failures? 
I take a moment to myself to, if I need to throw myself a little bit of a pity party or, you know, kind of sit and vent with either an entrepreneur friend or my partner, I'll do that. But I think you just have to be focused on what's ahead and solve, like either trying to solve it. And if it's not going to get solved, then just kind of moving forward. And I think I've always had that a little bit in my personality to be able to brush things off and then just keep moving forward. So it's it's worked itself out. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I think that it's still something, I think it's a muscle too, that mm-hmm. um, I mm-hmm. think it takes time to develop and, and kind of um, get used to do doing. Definitely. So you've mentioned in interviews that you work with a career life coach. Um, can you tell us a little bit, like personally and professionally, do you recommend that? Has that been helpful for you in building your business? I absolutely recommend it. It was, it has been so, it has been such a game changer for me because it just allows me to not think in a narrow minded way. And each call I have or every conversation that I have with my coach, um, we don't have a set schedule. It'll be, you know, maybe three, every three months or um, right before we're about to launch something or after we launch something, it's kind of dependent on what I'm feeling like I want to have this, this dialogue, but it just creates a sense of expansiveness. And I think it can be really easy to get in a sense of, I think, scarcity when you're building anything, especially I know Jacqueline, you and I just talked about before we started the interview a little bit about how noisy everything is in 2020. I think it's so easy to live in a little bit of a scarcity mindset. And I think when you have a bigger conversation, it reminds you of the abundance and kind of puts you back in this like, thinking in abundance framework. Mm, love that. So speaking of abundance, let's talk about scaling and building your team. So how big is the team now? And what tips do you have for entrepreneurs who are looking to build out their team and hire? We are still really small. So um, in total, between full-time and part-time, we have six people. And we I've purposely kept the team really lean. We are now like fully remote. And candidly, I think, you know, I'm still learning like how I'm hiring people. I'm hiring ahead of growth right now, actually, and just kicked off that search. And I ask my investors, I ask other entrepreneurs to tell me the questions and the tips and the um, sort of the resources that they use to, to really hire and, and also um, inspire people. Agreed. It's great to get that advice um, from the people who've done it um, time and time again. And I think everyone's still learning. It's generational. It's a new generation. There's so many different needs. Obviously, now everyone's working remotely, flexible work. All these things are, you know, learnings, I think, for everyone as as we go along. So what's the next big goal for you? And and how can we see uh, Brightland in the future? We are about to launch a new category outside of olive oil. So that's the next big thing we're doing. And I'm so excited. It's launching July 15th. Um, And so we've just been heads down doing that. And I think, you know, when I I think about our big goals, um, I really believe in this concept called intersectional environmentalism. And it's basically taking the idea that people and the planet matter. And it was coined by a former Patagonia employee named Leah Thomas. And I've been thinking a lot about how to apply that and and build that out for Brightland as we grow. So I would say, you know, in terms of like larger, bigger goals, I really want us to embody that 
value and, and um, make sure that it's baked into our DNA as we get bigger. I love that so much. So, okay, we're going to end with some rapid fire sentence finishers. Are you okay, ready? Cool. I am ready. Okay. The best career advice you've ever received. The race is long and hard. And at the end of the day, it is only with yourself. The worst career advice. Huh. Someone told me to keep a close eye on everyone in the food and D2C industry and notice what they're doing. <laughs> I think, yeah, you have to keep your eye on the prize and kind of focus on your own stuff. Otherwise, you have to focus learning. on your own stuff. Exactly. What's a moment you felt you made it? Honestly, it sounds so cheesy, but anytime we get customer reviews and customer emails and people posting with the product and talking about how it helped their health or how they gifted it to their family members, I feel like I just check off a little bit like of a made it box every time that happens. So that's, a, that's amazing. And also I love that you guys have, you have your reviews on the site. Like you we do. don't shy away from it and they're really beautiful. So I think that's great. I feel the same way. Anytime I even just get like a nice DM on Instagram, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. Um, little things, little things. It's the journey, right? Because I don't know what our destination is going to be. So I don't want to just be gunning for something that is so nebulous and out there. Mm. But instead, I think this entire journey is just, yeah, it, it's really wonderful. A change in the industry you'd like to see? Yes. Less discussion about funding and more about EBITDA. Oh, yes. Um, can you explain for our listeners a little bit more about what that means? Yes. So I think there is too much of a conversation around this company raised a hundred million dollars. This company, you know, raised $50 million. And at the end of the day, when you're doing that, you have to remember that you also are giving up valuable equity within your company, like your own equity, your own ownership. And you're just not, you're being diluted essentially, and you're not going to own as much of your company eventually. And so I think as much as there is an incredible kind of, um, there's so much, so much, so many incredible things that you can do when you fundraise and when you have resources like hire quickly and scale and grow, you also are, you also are giving up something. So EBITDA means earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And basically your EBITDA is, you know, if you want to become a profitable company, you have to keep a close eye on your EBITDA. And in a lot of instances, companies that raise a lot of money are told not to think about profitability. But then, you know, at, at some point, profitability becomes a conversation topic. And at that point, they've built the ship in a way that they have to turn this large thing over to something that they've never really considered or thought of. So if you can build a profitable, sustainable business, I think there's so much to be said about that. And we just don't... There are some incredible businesses out there that are profitable, sustainable, doing big things, but we just don't hear about them as much because the the kind of the funding news always um, takes Trump's. over. Exactly. Totally agree. I mean, as a company that is self-funded, profitable, um, we oftentimes don't get press because they're not interested because we haven't raised money. Um, and, and that's every major player has said no to us. So I think that's a great shift. I would love to see also, because it is not easy to make money. <laughs> it is exactly. not easy to have a profitable business these days, especially when you're going up against venture back companies, but even also is what oftentimes your valuation is based on. So that's also something for business owners about if you ever are looking to exit your company or raise, I guess. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. This was so informative and amazing. Um, if you haven't, check out her products. Do you want to give us where they can find them and shop online? 
Yes, absolutely. So our website is brightland.co and we sell and we ship across the country to all 50 states. And yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.